Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Hello, and welcome to the Ask Peggy Show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and we're going to start today with a Bulls and Bears market and economic update. Friday, February 23, 2018, the Dow Jones Industrial Average closed at 25,310. The NASDAQ closed at 7,337. The S&P 500 closed at 2,747, while gold closed at 1,331 an ounce and oil closed at $63.54 a barrel. Because there really isn't a lot of interesting market news this week, instead I'd like to focus on some economic information and ask you the question, who is Jerome Powell? Well, Jerome Powell is the new chair of the Federal Reserve. He replaced Janet Yellen on February 5th of this year, and he was formerly on the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. So he's been part of the voting block of the Fed for some time. He really understands the process. And typically, he sided with Janet Yellen on her ideas of economic policy. So why does that matter? Why is it important that Jerome Powell agree with Janet Yellen? Let's stop and ask another question. What is the purpose of the Federal Reserve? Well, the Federal Reserve has several things that it is tasked with, and surprisingly many things that it really doesn't do. So the first thing that the Federal Reserve System does is keep the nation's monetary policy functioning well. The way the Federal Reserve controls the money supply is by buying and selling government securities. So when it buys securities, it puts money into the system because it pays cash for it, When it sells securities, it takes money out of the system because when the Federal Reserve wants to sell something, then it has to be bought. So one of the primary goals of the Federal Reserve is controlling the flow of money. It's tasked with helping to maintain full employment, so it will take monetary policy that helps encourage job growth. It's also tasked with controlling inflation, so keeping prices from running too hot. And it's this controlling inflation piece of it that does a lot to determine whether or not someone is deemed to be a monetary policy hawk or a dove. Now, going back to where we were originally, Janet Yellen is a dove which means that she doesn't take a lot of actions designed to strongly impact the economy through the actions of the Federal Reserve. And she's not so afraid of inflation that she takes a lot of actions to control it, possibly presumptively before things actually happen. Now, monetary hawks do. They're so concerned about inflation going up that they're very proactive. They're very inclined to raise interest rates in the face of a potential increase in inflation, that they will cause the interest rates to rise more quickly. Janet Yellen raised rates slowly. And our new Federal Reserve Chair, Jerome Powell, 
looks inclined to hold this same position. So it's very unlikely that interest rates begin to climb precipitously unless something else in our economy looks like it is heating up entirely too fast. Now, the reason it's good that Jerome Powell is continuing the same kind of monetary policy is that markets hate uncertainty. So if you want to really upset the stock market, introduce a new variable that it doesn't think it really understands very well. And when you can keep those variables out, the market is more likely to react reasonably, rationally, likely go up. If there is a decline, it's not precipitous and it isn't a crash. So Jerome Powell does look like a very good, well-educated, competent choice to lead the Federal Reserve Board. Of course, we'll have to watch his actions through the year and watch his speeches. Many times, new Federal Reserve chairs do not understand the power of their words, and many of them make strong statements at first that become more and more tempered and more and more shaded the longer they're in the role because they see the impact that their words have. So watch this space. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. In today's legislative update, I want to talk about what's happening in the state of Maryland. As the national fiduciary rule that was proposed by the Department of Labor last year hits roadblocks, states are beginning to take up the issue themselves. And I think it's really important that we look at what the states are doing, and then we look at the groups that are supporting the state's actions and the groups that are trying to gum up the works. So Maryland created the Fiduciary Advisor Law, and that would involve Maryland investment advisors and stockbrokers and insurance agents to act as fiduciaries when they're working with clients. Now, this is a pretty sweeping bill because, remember, the Department of Labor rule only impacted retirement money flowing from qualified plans into IRAs. The Maryland bill basically was putting the fiduciary standard down for anyone who was giving financial advice to any consumer in the state. Well, unfortunately, the bill didn't really fare well this week, and it got a lot of opposition. The primary opposition came from FSI, which is the Financial Services Institute. Now, as they opposed the bill, which ultimately died within the Maryland legislature, they said, we support the fiduciary rule, but we believe that this bill is bad. I summarized a very long statement to, we believe this bill is bad. They thought, again, it's the same argument. If they have to be a fiduciary, the consumer isn't going to have access to affordable professional financial advice. That's the argument that's been used over and over in this fight. What I find really interesting about it is if you boil that into plain English, what it says is, if I have to act in your best interest, I won't work with you. That would be the only way a fiduciary rule would cause a financial advisor not to be willing to work with the middle market. 
personally, I'm not sure that it's such a bad thing if someone who isn't willing to be your fiduciary isn't willing to work with you. Are you really that bad off? But that's not a very popular position. I haven't heard that argument made a lot. But FSI's argument was, if we have to do this, we won't be able to do it. It'll be too burdensome on the financial advisors. No one will work with the smaller clients, so you can't do it. And like I said, ultimately, the bill got defeated. FSI tried to reiterate that they were in favor of a fiduciary standard. So I did a little digging. I wanted to see just how how were they excited about the fiduciary standard? What were they trying to do to make it go forward? What were they doing to promote it? So I looked to see what they said about the Department of Labor bill that came out. And guess what? They were opposed to that as well. They did a study against the rule, and I say against because all of their findings were how horrible this rule was, and they said that the Department of Labor fiduciary rule was a bad idea, wouldn't work, that it would cost too much money, the the financial services industry wouldn't be able to afford to implement it, and it would be burdensome to the independent financial services industry as well as the investors that receive the advice. So basically, it's the same argument that they used with the Maryland rule. They like the fiduciary standard. They just don't like this version of it, which begs the question, what version of the fiduciary standard do they like? And as of today, I don't have an answer to that question. I have a feeling they say they like the fiduciary standard because it sounds good. And really, people are sometimes sort of hesitant to say they're opposed to it. However, They don't like bill after bill after bill that's trying to protect the financial consumers. So at the end of the day, they don't really seem to be very consumer friendly. They seem to be more pro-industry. And if I can find something to disprove that, I will certainly share it with you on a later show. But for right now, it just seems like FSI is opposed to the fiduciary standard. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. I always really enjoy taping this next part of the show, which is the plan your prosperity part of it. Because I am a financial planner, I really enjoy helping people understand their money get control of their money. There's many things that you can do that are not dependent on stock market results to try to help improve your financial condition. So in this section of the show, I really like the fact we're not talking about the market. And instead, I'm trying to give you some strategies that you can use to make your financial life just a little bit easier. And today, I want to talk about paying off debt. People are just ashamed of their debt. New clients come in to see me for the first time, and they don't like to talk about it. They mumble a little bit about it as they talk about it. You know, they'll talk about their investment portfolio. They'll talk about how much insurance they have. They'll talk about when they want to retire. But if I ask them how much debt they have, they really don't like answering the question. And usually, it isn't the mortgage debt that's causing this looking down and not making eye contact. It's other kinds of debt. It's consumer debt. And the problem with this kind of debt is it's just 
financially draining, and it's mentally oppressive. Now, I don't want to sound like other financial celebrities who really put people under a lot of condemnation for having debt. You acquire debt for a lot of reasons. Some of them are absolutely understandable. Some of them might be making not a great decision at some point in time, but you know what? Every single person alive has made bad decisions. So if you've got some debt and it's from great reasons, that, that's great. And if you've got debt and it's not from so great reasons, that's also okay. Quit beating yourself up. Quit being embarrassed about what's happened and instead create a plan for trying to get out of debt. So how do you do that? Well, the first thing you need to figure out is how much discretionary income do you have each month that could be used to pay off extra toward the debt? We go back to cash flow. And I know I talk a lot about cash flow, but the problem is to the way I see financial planning, it's so central. So you need to look to see what are the expenses that you have to pay every month. And then what are you spending money on that you wouldn't have to buy every time? You're looking to free up some money. And if you make yourself write everything down, that black and white number that you look at is easier to actually pay towards debt than just being kind of vague and saying, yeah, I'll put a little little extra money against the debt when I get a chance. So figure out how much you can pay off. Maybe you could put $50. Maybe you could put $100. Sometimes I find that people have a little bit of extra money, but it's not a lot of money, and it seems so hopeless to put that money against debt, especially if it's a lot of debt, that they don't even start. So I'd like you to not do that. Even if you can only pay $25 more than the minimum payment against something, that's a great place to start. If you can put more against it, even better. It's very unlikely that investment returns would get a higher rate than the rate that you're paying against consumer debt because credit card debt is crazy high. Now, automobiles are consumer debt, but as long as you've chosen a sensible vehicle, you haven't spent more money than you really could afford to spend. If you're making a car payment, keep making it. If you want to pay it off early, that's great. I'm really talking about credit card debt here or other kinds of debt that you just don't want to accrue. If you have a mortgage and it's a mortgage on a house and you can afford the house and you can make the payments and it's just part of your life, I'm not really talking about the mortgage either, although certainly paying off a mortgage early would be awesome. I'm talking about that other debt. So you want to put as much money towards that debt as you can. The question is, what should you pay off first? Well, the sensible answer to that is the card with the highest rate of interest, right? Because that's where you're losing the most money in interest and you'll save the most money if you pay that card off first. But I've seen situations where clients have several cards. Two or three cards have small balances and one card has a bigger balance. And sometimes those little bitty pieces of debt drive them crazy. So they would rather pay off the small amounts, even if it's at a lower rate of interest, than the larger card. I say you really can't do this wrong. 
Okay, yes, you're going to spend a little bit of extra money by paying off the debt of a lower interest rate card before the higher rate card. I understand that. But if you get great satisfaction about wiping out those small debts and that gives you a motivation to start, then that's what you need to do. Go ahead and start because, again, if people don't start, they don't pay off the debt. Once you pay a card off, do not immediately run and cancel it because part of your credit score is your debt to credit ratio. In other words, how much debt could you have on the card? What's your credit limit? How much of that are you using? And what's the differential? If you've maxed out all the cards and you don't have any other cards, then you've got a really bad debt to credit ratio. And if you, um, turn the card in, if you cut it up, if you cancel it, then you actually lower your debt to credit ratio once, um, if you cancel it too quickly. You need to get a lot of the debt paid off before you start canceling the cards. Once you have a lot of available credit, then if you've got a card that has a fee or you've got a card from like a department store that typically has worse rates, then you can go ahead and cancel that. But you want to be very careful that you don't mess up your credit by trying to do the responsible thing and get rid of the credit card. Now, you can put that card in a dresser drawer so that it's not in your wallet or your purse so that you don't carry it with you. I've heard of people, once cards are paid off, they put them in water and they put them in the freezer. I can't advocate this. I've never done it. It seems like you might screw up the chip, so I think that's not a good idea. But put that card in a place that's hard to get to. Try to live off of the money that you have. If you use the card, pay it off every single month once it's paid down, and your life will be so much less stressful. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. It's time for the Ask Peggy segment again. Remember, if you want to send in a question and have me answer it on the air, you can go to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and type in the question, and then I'll answer it on the air for you. So remember, it's Ask Peggy on the Facebook page if you're interested. So the first question that I got this week is Peggy. How can my family go on vacation this summer without spending too much money? It's getting a little bit warmer, and so spring break is beginning to call to us. Summer vacation is beginning to call to us, and yet you don't want to take a summer vacation where you accrue so much debt that you're paying for it for the rest of the year. We really want to go on a trip, but we really shouldn't spend so much money that all the value of the trip is lost by the time we get home. So how do we decide what kind of vacation to take? Well, as in the last section, it comes down to cash flow to a certain extent and the ability to save money. So I would recommend that you do a rough analysis of about how much money you can spend and then call a family meeting. You know, there's no point putting a trip to Disney World for a week with the crazy cost of those tickets on the table if you know you can't come anywhere close to actually providing that vacation. So have an idea what the budget is. 
Then call a family meeting. Let everyone give their input. You may be surprised to learn that the kids aren't really wanting to go someplace very expensive. They want to do something you didn't even think of. And so rather than worrying about the money and stressing about the money, you could create a solution where everybody would be happy and you'd save a lot. If all of the suggestions are too high, there's nothing wrong with being honest with your kids about how much money is available for a trip. Now, remember, kids are automatically in positions of not having any power because they don't have earning potential, so you don't want to stress your kids about a financial situation in a way that they just don't know how to cope with it, they don't have the ability to fix it, and then all they do is worry. But it is okay to tell them what the budget for the vacation is, and it's actually a really great budgeting lesson to help them see what their ideas cost. Because money is magic to kids. Well, actually, sometimes money is magic to adults, too, but money is really magic to kids, and they don't understand how it works. This is a really great, non-threatening way to begin to start that dialogue about what things cost. So now, once you know where you're going, you need to decide what you want to do while you're there. And it might be nice to let everyone tell you what their first priority for the vacation would be. Maybe someone really does want to go to a theme park, but rather than a week at Disney, maybe it's a day at Six Flags or something like that where you can control the cost. But if everyone gives you their number one thing that they are hoping to do, then that will give you a way to begin to structure the money and figure out what you can afford, figure out what you can't afford, and it also stops parents from wasting money on events that they think the kids want that the kids don't actually really want to do. So that gets everyone with their top priorities met, and you haven't just gone in the hole a lot. It's also good to figure out things you could do on this trip to save money. I remember when I was little and we'd travel, we always packed a picnic lunch. And we'd stop at one of the roadside things because we usually drove. And so we'd stop at one of the picnic tables and we ate bologna sandwiches. I don't know that they even make bologna sandwiches anymore, but now I tend to make things like ham and cheese sandwiches, and I still picnic a lot. Eating out doesn't add a lot to the memories of a vacation, and it's unbelievably expensive. So if you can cut your food bill by half or maybe even more by doing um, picnics and breakfast in the room and then saving your meals for really special things, or maybe eating lunch out and picnicking for dinner. A picnic on the beach is much better than a dinner at a restaurant, and everybody will remember the memories that you've made. Finally, go ahead and give the kids a little bit of spending money, because if they have spending money, they'll value how they spend it. Now, you cover the big costs. I'm not saying that kids have to pay their own way. That's not possible. But if they want souvenirs and they want candy at the gas station and all of those things, give them a pre-amount set of cash and then let them know they can keep it after the trip if they don't spend it. And you will be amazed at how miserly your children can become. 
It will stop them from asking you for lots of money, and it will give them control of the money and let them see what things cost. And overall, it will cause less money to be spent, and no one will feel like they're being gypped because everyone's getting to be in control of the money that they have. If you do this, the vacation will be fun. It'll be relaxing. It won't be crazy expensive, and you won't lose all the value of the vacation when you open your credit card bill the month after you get home. The second question that I got this week is Peggy. What are the FDIC limits? Well, remember the FDIC stands for the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And that is the group that protects your money in the bank, so that you know you're not going to lose the money if something happens and the bank fails. FDIC came about after the bank failures back in the Great Depression, and it's been a way of peace of mind for consumers ever since. But the limits are there to make sure the FDIC can function, and the FDIC limits were adjusted. After our Great Recession of 2008, and so now people are just confused most of the time about what they have. So basically, what you have is $250,000 of FDIC insurance for each kind of account that you have. And let me explain what that means. If you have a single account. At a bank, you have up to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars of coverage. If you have two single accounts at the bank, you still have two hundred and fifty thousand dollars of coverage. So it's really important to look at the titling of the accounts to make sure that you are within your coverage limits. Some kinds of retirement accounts that banks hold that are basically fixed, but it takes the form of something like an IRA, is also two hundred and fifty because those are single owner accounts. But a joint account is two hundred and fifty thousand dollars per owner. Now you could have a single account at a bank and get your two hundred and fifty thousand dollars of coverage. And a joint account, and have another two hundred and fifty thousand dollars of coverage. So, if you're trying to keep your assets in a bank, remember that how it's titled will restart the FDIC coverage. So you can have more than one account. It's not two hundred and fifty thousand dollars per bank. It's two hundred and fifty thousand dollars per account type, per financial institution. That makes it easier to stay inside the limits, and you don't have to worry as much about it. Well, I can't believe how fast this show has gone. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to tune in next week because we're weekly now to Ask Peggy. So I have time for one more quick question, which is, Peggy, how do I know how my financial advisor is paid? Well, remember. All financial professionals are paid somehow. Maybe it's through a commission, or an hourly fee, or a retainer. Some kind of a hybrid model of all of those. Some products have trails where the advisor gets paid an amount even after the sale is made. So we're not so much concerned that people are getting paid. It's how much and how are they getting paid. And the easiest answer is to ask them. And also look up on regulatory websites like FINRA or your local state regulator site. 
Now, when you ask the question, be really careful how you ask it, because sometimes the companies that create products actually pay the advisors directly, and then that fee gets carried on to you through something like a surrender fee or an annual fee, and it kind of varies in. So you want to ask the advisor who has paid you. For this product from any source, not just money I've paid, but how else have you gotten paid for this, and how much did you receive for it? Now, this is going to be an awkward conversation, and not every advisor is going to want to answer it. In fact, some companies tell the advisors they can't say how much compensation they received. But I'm not really inclined not to want to hold their feet to the fire, because typically you should have an invoice. You should know how much was paid. You should know the service that was provided, and then you decide if that amount of money is reasonable compensation for what they did. Thanks for listening. See you next week. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at peggydoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.